Hello everyone, welcome back to Hearing Her Voice. As part of a student organization at ECSD, we cannot forget the discussion about sexual assault on our first podcast with Dr. Anita Raj. We talked about how first and second generation college students might be dissuaded to continue their education after a sexual harassment or assault. These traumatic experiences simply add huge weight and stress onto them, which give them a hard time to continue pursuing their education. While Dr. Anita Raj has sent us a list of sexual assault resources, not only for UCSD students, but also for our non-UCSD listeners, we wanted to use this podcast, Hearing Her Voice, to hear from those who are trained to help those who are going through traumatic experiences. We are honored to have Cristina Mendez from UCSD CAPS, which stands for Counseling and Psychological Services. She's currently a postdoctoral resident at UCSD and has great interest in Latinx students, chronic stress related to systematic oppression, and more. We had a great time talking with her, and we hope you enjoy it as well. Now we're on live or on recording. Hi, my name is Scarlett. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'm here with Jin Ho Jung and Christina Mendez. Hello. Um, we're here um, to talk about um, CAPS and um, about her story and about other things. Um, so would you like to um, talk about yourself a little bit? Yeah, so thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Um, again, my name is Dr. Cristina Mendez. I go by she, her, hers pronouns, a en espanol. Um, I identify as a bilingual psychologist in training almost. I'm a postdoctoral resident right now. So bilingual mental health professional rather. Um, I identify as a community-oriented provider, trauma-informed provider, and feminist multicultural-oriented provider, um, and I'll probably unpack that a little bit with some of the things we'll be talking about today. Um, but yeah, I'm passionate about serving communities, dismantling systems of oppression, and supporting our students and, and folks within, within the bigger community as a part of that. So I'm so happy to be here and, and be part of this awesome cause. Okay, great. Yeah, so you talked about how you're passionate about serving these communities, and then there are just a lot of ways to serve the communities, like being a social worker or being a researcher. What made you like specifically interested in this field of psychology? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's a really good question. There's so many different ways to be a community activist, an advocate, and person in service of communities. Um, and I think, you know, for each person, the path can look different, but still have humongous impacts. Um, for me, I ended up going with psychology, specifically a doctorate program, because I knew I wanted to do research um, to help um, advocate and uplift particularly BIPOC communities and especially um, Spanish speaking communities in the US. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to kind of put out research and have people listen to my voice as we're talking about in here. Um, and, you know, a lot starting to change in terms of, um, you know, empowering woman identified folks and BIPOC providers. Um, but nonetheless, when I started, it was kind of this idea of if you want to be heard, you have to get a PhD, which is, you know, a colonial oppressive hierarchical system to begin with. But um, I got my PhD so that you know, the world could hear me roar in that sense. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do some therapy work, um, but also a lot of research and possibly teaching and community organizing. And so um, for me, a doctorate program offered that. 
I know for social work, I have so many colleagues who are social workers and do amazing work in communities. And there's so much that you can do related to that, just less of an emphasis on research and a different kind of emphasis on like one-on-one -on -one client work. Um, and I know um, a lot of folks who are educators as well and can do very similar work. So I work with a lot of folks from different fields, both here at UCSD, but also in my work in community research and at different universities and organizations. So, you know, I chose my path because of, you know, specific interests that I had. And I want to advocate that there's so many wonderful intersecting professions that can collaborate together to make um, bigger social change. Oh, wow. So, Christina, can you tell us uh, like an experience that you had while doing research, like something that you just think it's memorable that um, you can share with us, either that you encountered with someone or something, some research that you found out that um, potentially has helped the community and um, could possibly also help be heard through here? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, I love having, you know, platform to amplify all that. Um, well, I'll say a lot of work that I've done has related to yoga and mindfulness-based intervention, um, particularly in like Latinx communities, um, predominantly immigrant communities and a lot of newcomer immigrant communities. So folks who have come to the U.S. Um, or at least what's considered to be the U.S. by more modern borders um, in recent years. And so um, the research that I did um, in part was helping to deliver mindfulness and yoga programming as preventive wellness. So for stress reduction, for coping skills, for accessible tools for well-being, um, because we know there's a lot of barriers to BIPOC folks accessing care. Um, and so the great thing about mindfulness is that once it's taught, um, there's also a lot of barriers to sometimes accessing that, um, but once you have access to it, it's a tool that you have internally and you can practice wherever you're at. Um, and so in working with communities, I realized that there were some adaptations that could be helpful to make to make practices more personable or accessible. Um, and so for some of my research for my dissertation, I made some language adaptations and bilingual um, program adaptations to teach to predominantly Spanish speaking newcomer immigrants. Um, and so was able to also integrate some English language learning components because they were also interested in, in learning English in their school program. And so um, just integrated some different means of learning that was accessible to the students so that it would be understandable, easy to practice, and then also bringing in um, qualities of like warmth and, and reminding the field that um, building relationship is so important with communities and building trust um, and trauma-informed care and practice because of everything that folks go through. One is BIPOC individuals in the US and also as immigrants from, from anywhere that can be so many stressors. Um, coming to the U.S. Um, and everyone's story is different. This was just for the, the youth that I worked with. So um, some great outcomes were, you know, hearing that it was well received by folks um, and seeing opportunities to replicate and train other people in that. Um, I really am passionate about kind of train the trainer models. So I've had opportunities to um, train other providers in these methods methodologies um, and to continue writing about ways to um, kind of like spread opportunities for preventive well-being. It's a long answer. <laughs> it was wonderful. Maybe for our listeners, BIPOC means um, Black Indigenous People of Color. And then yes. so I'm guessing like if we sign up for a counseling session with you, will you be doing yoga with us? 
<laughs> That's a good question. Um, so for me, you know, my journey more recently with yoga has been one of a lot of self-reflection. Um, I identify as, as Latina and I'm mixed race or ethnicity and also white. And, you know, yoga is not from my ancestral traditions. Um, and so in learning yoga, um, you know, I was fortunate to have learned from traditions that were brought over by, by teachers who wanted it to be shared. And nonetheless, you know, the tradition as a whole has been colonized and appropriated so much um, in recent years. And so with yoga, you know, after I'm still sitting and reflecting and learning and humbling myself, I do my best to teach it, um, honoring the spectrum of what it is intended to be, which is more than just physical movement, a whole lot more, right? So in the West, when you think of yoga, you might think of some oftentimes portrayed as like a tall, skinny, blonde, white woman um, in, you know, fancy, expensive clothes, doing like some super bendy posture. Um, and so, you know, for me, as I integrate yoga into a lot of the things that I do, yoga is about being connected, being present, being um attuned to the world around us and in reciprocal um, understanding and relationship. And I think that relates to a lot of, you know, what a lot of indigenous traditions value as well. And so I bring in yoga in my therapy through mindfulness, through breathing, through um, helping my clients trust their intuition again and get connected with their own ancestral lineages and the world around them. So in that sense, yes, I bring yoga in. I do have a forum called Yoga for Wellness where I integrate some gentle movement, um, but my emphasis is when I bring in yoga, it's about the holistic picture rather than kind of the Eurocentric like physical movement image kind of picture um, and still always humbling myself and, and doing the best I can. Okay. You know, I, I think that's that's very powerful when it comes to um, helping with stress. Um, I feel like often in our culture, it's very embedded to just be hustling, like work hard, you know, and um, even if you don't, if you slow down, I feel like it's always the typical phrase that um, at least my mom would always say to me, Te corre la sangre muy fría, which means like <laughs> okay, your blood is that. not like going super fast like oh. come on let's get going you know and so it's always like I feel like we're always hustling and we never actually take the time to actually um, think and reflect and have that mindfulness um, so um, I really really think that yoga is something very important because it helps with mental health and um, we all know that um, stress can cause a lot of other diseases and you know in the Latino community there's a lot of chronic diseases. So, you know, starting at, from the beginning is always yeah. very crucial. So the earlier, the better. But having that said, um, I do know that a lot of people um, in the community, the Latino community don't like to seek therapy or any sort of help just because for different reason, but mainly the reason is because it's said to believe that it's for people who are crazy, who need the medication, who are very um, sick mentally. But I, for one, don't believe that because, you know, we all need to talk to a friend when we feel um, like something is going wrong with our life. We all need sometimes, even I go to the priest and, you know, I do my confession and I'm just like, hey, so what do I do? <laughs> or just letting anything out because, you know, if you boil it in, it's actually not very good. So how do you deal with, you know, um, being able to tell the community, you know, that's not what it is, you know, it's more of like you talking to somebody, and it's all confidential, there's like, um, nothing 
that will tell you that you're crazy, you know, how do you um, tell them that it's okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot of layers to that. So I want to like, be really intentional to try and address them all. And um, yeah, I think that that is such an important question, you know, to start out with, I know you mentioned, um, you know, this idea of like, oh, yeah, you got to be hustling, um, you know, because that's, that's the way it is. And what I'll say is that, you know, for a lot of cultures who have been influenced by Eurocentric and colonial values, that has become an ideal. And at the same time, that's not the way that our ancestors lived. And when I say our ancestors, you can go to through any culture back in time. And there was more connection with the earth, with community, with one another. And so, you know, I, I do try to remind folks, one, like just from that standpoint, and I'll address the other parts too, um, but that this isn't necessarily how it ought to be or how it should be. Um, you know, there's a lot of pathology or mental illness that's coming up in society. Um, and the way that from a feminist multicultural perspective views it is that that is society that's ill. That's not the individual that's ill. And so, you know, a lot of work that I do is in decolonizing work and in recognizing that, you know, the systems are, it's important to recognize the systems instead of pointing, you know, the finger at the symptoms that are coming up in the individual. So yes, there's like, you know, that piece of like, we need mindfulness and that's important. And each of our ancestries, each of our cultures have valuable wisdom that goes back before, you know, modern Eurocentric society said that it had to be a very specific and rigid way to be valuable. So there's that piece in terms of engaging, you know, Latinx communities or other BIPOC communities too, where there's skepticism of mental health. Um, I want to acknowledge that, you know, I think it's a really healthy skepticism historically, you know, as I talk about colonialism and Eurocentric oppression, um, you know, this relates to white supremacy and anti-racism work as that's being done as well. Um, you know, a lot of folks of color have been abused and harmed by systems of medicine and mental health. Um, and so I think that it's really important to acknowledge that skepticism and honor that, you know, that's a way of folks trying to keep themselves and their families and their future generations safe. Um, with that said, you know, I've had the privilege of working with so many um, psychologists of color, so many different professionals across fields. I mentioned I work with educators and social workers and so many different professions. Um, and there is an increase in representation happening. And I think that that is absolutely essential to increase trust in the field and also to increase the voice of BIPOC folks, of Latinx folks, of folks from historically oppressed communities in shaping the field and in shaping treatment that's going to be most caring towards folks who are currently skeptical about it. Um, and so what I'll say is, you know, increasing accessibility, I think it's important to see oneself reflected in providers, in researchers, in what's out there. Um, and so I've worked with, um, you know, the Latinx community um, in therapy settings and in education settings for many years, and it's one of my specialty areas. Um, and I hear so often just knowing that I can provide services in Spanish, being able to even speak Spanglish with me if some folks don't want to speak, you know, Spanish, like doing English Spanish mix, or just knowing um, that at least part of my ancestry is shared. Um, 
there's a lot of ease and comfort that comes up there. And so, you know, ultimately in therapy research, which a lot of it is Eurocentric and, and colonial says, ultimately, you know, it doesn't matter necessarily if your provider matches your ethnicity or race. Um, if you stick through therapy, the outcomes are the same. And at the same time, there is research that also says, you know, BIPOC folks are less likely to continue um, a lot of times if their provider doesn't match their race or ethnicity. So it's like, if you can get through that initial hurdle, sure, like there are similar outcomes. And nonetheless, I think that, you know, what's most important is you feeling comfortable with your provider. So, you know, for folks from historically oppressed communities, um, you may hear, you know, providers say like, oh, it doesn't, you know, ultimately the results are the same but the process is really important for the client. And so I think it's really important to honor that and to find a provider, you know, that, that mirrors your values, that makes you feel comfortable and safe. It may be, you know, someone of similar race or ethnicity, you might try it and be like, you know what, this isn't a good fit. And there's lots of providers out there. So, you know, that's one thing that I say, um, you know, if folks are skeptical, that's healthy, that's understandable. Um, know that things are changing, that there are so many providers who are advocating for the well-being of folks of color and historically oppressed communities. And, um, you know, listen to your intuition and, and trust that and find providers who are willing to, you know, support you in the way that you need. I feel that's very important. And I really like how you said that um, self-reflection is also very important because when you see someone who can, um, be from your same background, had the same barriers um, hurdle that had to jump over, you feel like you can trust that person into taking care of you. Because if they were able to make it um, past all of these um, hurdles, then that means that that person um, can also help you. So I think that that's very crucial what you say. And, and it is true that endpoint at the end of the day is the same but the process is what actually makes the difference and if you don't have that like patient relationship where you understand the person and um, make them feel less skeptical and skeptical and more um, comfortable then you know it's not really going to matter as much it's not going to have as much significance and then as well as you know um, being able to uh, put the first step is is also being comfortable. So I think when you see someone um, who you feel they will understand you, because I recently um, heard someone previously say, oh, they're not gonna understand. They're just gonna tell me the same thing. And, and I understand because it was probably the provider, not the same race. Mm -hmm. So um, I know uh, my mom had a different turnover when she was um, being seen by this provider. Um, who basically would say, you can't eat it, tortillas, nothing. And it was Christmas break and, you know, it all, and it's like, I can't eat anything for Christmas, you know? And then, yeah. so she um, saw another provider that was um, also a Latina and she was like, you know what? I know the traditions and in my family is the same, you know, I know that you have to taste all the, the tamales because there's like 10 flavors <laughs> and it's like, just limit yourself to like, two and then cut them in half and that way you get to taste half of each and then just share the other half with the others that way you're not like out 
of like being together with the family you know you can still be part of everything you can taste everything too so I think that understanding of culture and how everything is actually eased my mom and was more comfortable with sharing like you know yeah I have like this is gonna happen and you know I'm sorry and the doctor being like it's okay I understand how about we do this this is the game plan instead of saying you know what absolutely not you're going to not have that you're gonna have a horrible Christmas you know (laughs) (laughs) it's very important and especially here in San Diego there's a big Latino community and other races as Mm -hmm. well um so yeah yeah, and and one thing you know I'll add to that is you know, I think this quality, whether it's, you know, working with same race or same ethnicity providers or clients, I think at a minimum, you know, shared community values, um, at least in really major ones, because I work with clients from a lot of different races and ethnicities. And one thing that I find, especially working with BIPOC clients is, you know, there's a sense of ease when they know that I care about them and I'm going to take care of them like their, you know, family. And that's, you know, I think what comes up in like, you know, the Latinx community, at least from my own experience with my family and in my training and in my work with clients and communities, it's like, you want to know that this person genuinely cares about you and your well-being and is not going to look at you as someone like you're saying, who's like pathological or crazy, but see you as a whole person and who's going to, you know, give you that authentic attention and presence. Um, and so, you know, I'll say that, you know, it may be, you know, same race, same ethnicity, and at a minimum, you know, it's someone who gets it, someone who understands the values that you're coming from, that your family comes from, you know, what's meaningful to you and doesn't make assumptions based on what might be, you know, majority, it said majority versus minority. Honestly, I think minorities comprise like quite a bit of the U.S. population. So, you know, what- what has changed. Yeah, things things are changing. Um, but yeah, so you know, rather than what comprises, you know, what's considered the mainstream kind of values. So um, you know, I'll put that out there that that those shared values can present across races and ethnicities, of course. Like so many communities have beautiful values and and I mean almost all communities except for oppressive, <laughs> oppressive ones. And so, you know, it's like finding that common ground and making sure that you and your provider share those values, I think is really important for building that trust. Yeah, I just love like how, I think you briefly mentioned it, like um, how patients would need to identify it as the same ethnicity as a provider in order for follow-ups. And then that kind of shows like where we should be aiming to solve we're not we should not be you know telling these patients like oh it's not something that you know you should not be stigmatized like you should not be thinking that way rather we're telling the society saying we should be advocating for more of these you know providers to provide more variety and like depth of uh, counseling services just because there's definitely that some human touch that like as Scarlett said only that culture can face like for me, I'm from Korea. So I was grown up till age of 18. So like when I go to a counselor, I always worry about losing face and then, you know, thinking that I might look weak, like less stressful. I think it's the same for different cultures, like maybe mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. cultures. But if I know a Korean, like maybe Asian provider, who's going to say like, it's okay. I would like really feel that like from a family's perspective because like it's like you know a big brother telling me that you know it's okay not um who might i i don't want to but i might think that oh they don't know what i'm talking about 100 mm-hmm. i think that that can be so healing 
And, and like y'all mentioned, you know, um, increasing that representation in the community and in providers gives those increased opportunities for that corrective experience, for providers to shift the dynamic for folks who are seeking services and to be able to offer that. Because sometimes even within our own cultures, there can be harmful messages. And a lot of times those are internalized trauma, internalized oppression from, you know, Eurocentric colonial places. Um, and nonetheless, you know, when someone from our own community gives us that care and validation, it can, it can mean a world of difference. So I 100% I can understand and, and resonate with that. Okay. Probably, uh, why don't we shift gears here and then talk about, um, pretty sure you had days when you were a college student, high school student, who had all these, you know, conflicting values. I think you briefly mentioned you're from a different multicultural perspective. You have all these interests. And if there were um, any challenges that you want to highlight that was kind of stressful for you and like how you were able to overcome it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that identifying as someone who is community oriented and feminist multicultural oriented means that, you know, I'm on a lifelong journey for advocacy and humbling myself and, um, you know, growing. And so, yeah, in the advocacy process, um, you know, I've worked in a lot of systems, mostly like educational systems, community systems, um, and I'm really passionate about dismantling oppressive parts of those systems and you know in many perspectives systems themselves can can be oppressive depending on you know what they look like and where they're located and what their function is and so in being someone who advocates for change you know there's naturally a lot of resistance to that yeah. <laughs> so um I am someone who you know something changed when I was in college I think you know I had the privilege of having a lot of really amazing instructors and I was kind of you know, talking with some some folks reflecting about a lot of white male, white cis hetero male instructors who have actually like really um, uplifted and empowered me to have a voice. Um, so I'm like, you know, when we think about there's definitely been situations where, you know, I've had opposite experiences, but I have had some really amazing professors who have you know, taught me a lot about advocacy, about community organization, about humanitarianism and making a difference in the world in college. Um, and, you know, for me, it helped me be a lot more outspoken and recognize like there's a lot of stuff that's really effed up going on and like things need to change. And so, you know, from college on, I've been like fairly outspoken. I used to be like pretty shy about speaking up about those kinds of things. Um, and even, you know, requires our own inner work to see what the heck is going on around us to see what isn't working. Um, and so, yeah, I'll say, you know, most steps of my, you know, education process and a lot of, you know, different areas of advocacy, there is resistance. And um, I imagine a lot of folks, you know, folks are listening who are also advocates, you know, um, you will meet resistance. That's what comes up in response to change. It's like a, a system is like, whoa, 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 what the heck is threatening? Like our, our current state of being, um, you know, work and growth is really hard. Um, and when people are fatigued, um, it's hard to be receptive to that. And our society makes it such that most people are really freaking tired because they're exploited and overworked and don't have access to the resources they need to, you know, be in tune with their, their authentic humanity in a lot of ways. And so when change comes, people are like, I don't want to do extra, like I barely have enough to give right now. And so, you know, it's, it's a really nuanced dynamic. Um, 
in terms of like, you know, holding compassion for folks who are being exploited by the system and also upholding the system. And then also being really intentional and holding fierce love for what needs to be changed so that more and more people aren't harmed. Um, and so, yeah, I'll say that those are challenges. Um, and I imagine other folks can relate. And, uh, you know, I've had communities that I've um, received support from throughout my education and, you know, continue to receive support from, I think, as anyone who identifies as an advocate, um, it's really important to be in touch with that. Um, and I've had my mentors who I connect to, um, and I'm just so inspired by all the work that they do in the world. And so, you know, for me, even their belief in me over the years has just kind of kept me going. And so, you know, finding those people who kind of like help to, to relight you up, to keep you lit up and communities who are like, yeah, I know what you're going through. This sucks. Like, this is really hard. <laughs> and then that nourishment of self, um, you know, for me, I spend a lot of time in nature and um, I've got my little dog sleeping here in the room and with my family and, um, you know, try and practice that, that yoga, that connectedness to like the world and also connect to my ancestry and my roots um, to keep me going through that. But yes, it's a process. <laughs> like just that simple word of encouragement, like from, you know, from who you look up to just makes a world of difference. Like you feel like you're going the right way because you always doubt yourself. That's always the case for me. Like whenever I'm doing something, I always look at the consequences when speaking up, like would this look bad on me? How would it backfire? Like all, I think of all these consequences, but when there's someone it doesn't have to be a mentor, I guess, but someone who's could who really supports my values and just saying like, hey, you're doing the right thing. Like you're doing uh, not only for yourself, but for the community. That kind of gives you assurance that, mm -hmm. yeah, this is worth the path that I'm going through. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with that, I know you said it doesn't have to be a mentor. Also, you know, if you find mentors, like, why the heck not? I think it's so valuable. Um, you know, we talked about finding therapists who resonate with us. Um, mentors, like, therapy is, you know, in its current form, a more modern construct. Historically, people have sought support and healing and connection from one another. And for me, my, you know, mentorship relationships have been so empowering, so healing. And I've been really fortunate to, you know, have a lot of inspirational mentors. And so um, I recently attended a, a decolonizing con conference that talked about, you know, the healing and empowering benefits of especially like mentorship that's intentional to decolonize the process and, and be empowering of, of mentees. And, um, you know, I think if you can find good mentors in this world, in your journeys, then it can make all the difference, like you're saying. And it doesn't have to be a mentor. Nonetheless, like they can really help too. Yeah. Thank you for being our listeners, mentors right now. <laughs> <laughs> so Going on what Jinho had said, um, so it brought to me um, the whole imposter syndrome. Um, I know a lot of famous people and powerful people who suffer, um, including um, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, had said that she also um, suffers from imposter syndrome, you know, that where she sometimes feels like when she walks into the room and she feels like she doesn't fit in, that mm -hmm. she is actually um, not adequate to be there um but then she says she reminds herself that no she deserves to be there she uh, did all of her education and um 
just because she's a Latina doesn't mean that she doesn't belong. Yes. And, um, <laughs> um, and I sometimes feel like, like that too. Like sometimes I even self-doubt myself. I'm like, do I actually know what I'm doing? Like, <laughs> so how do you help those students that come to you and have a, all this self-doubt? Because I know when I was in college, I was all over the place. I was like, should I even be here? Like, not like, I was one of the few from my high school that actually went to a university and I'm like the first gen, nobody else did. No one in my family, my cousins, um, I was just alone there. So I was constantly self-doubting if I should even be there. Um, How do you help those students who have these doubts? Yeah, well, you know, in terms of like general information, again, this is not direct therapy, this is just information, right? With imposter syndrome, you know, one thing with my approach to therapy is, um, you know, being kind of like y'all mentioned, like being a mentor in this setting, um, from the feminist multicultural perspective, there are roles of like mentorship within therapy. And I share like, heck, I experience imposter syndrome all the time. I think that's so human to have that whenever we're growing, whenever we're trying whenever we're pushed to like kind of new edges of what we had been able to do before or what we thought we could do before um, those doubts come up and you know I think within that it's also important to recognize just like I mentioned earlier there can be a lot of nuances and intersections of a lot of systems that exist today including you know current academia in the United States and many parts of the world we're not created for BIPOC folks. We're not created for historically um, oppressed folks, um, historically, at least in yeah the last maybe couple hundreds of years. Um, and we're actually very intentionally created to keep those folks out. And so I think that it's important to recognize that kind of like um, reality that I think that those messages still very much do exist on a subconscious level, if not overt levels. I think, you know, a lot of universities are doing their very best to like, you know, change that and make spaces more inclusive and representative and welcoming and safe and supportive. And nonetheless, I think that it's also important to just recognize, you know, those injustices that have historically existed in these places. So just like you mentioned, you know, for the representative, it's like, yeah, those spaces, especially in the United States, were not created for Latina women. Hell no, they were not. They were created for white men. Um, And so, you know, I think that it's really important to recognize that. And that's part of, you know, the advocacy piece. I'm like, we can keep, you know, changing this. And, um, And with imposter syndrome, regardless, I think any human would experience that, you know, with something new. For me, kind of taking on that that mentor kind of stance, um, I try to remember, you know, what I'm in service of in what I'm doing. Like if I'm giving a presentation, when I give like larger presentations, sometimes I get really nervous. Um, And I'm like, what am I in service of? Like I'm in service of communities. I'm in service of like liberation. I'm in service of like helping people find peace. And that's, that's the yoga practice for me too, is like coming back to that remembrance of like, what's beyond me as like an individual, like, this isn't about me, like, you know, Christina, like as like a one person, it's about the community and that helps me, you know, diffuse some of that worry. Um, Nonetheless, I totally have presentations where I'm like, what did I say? I think that went well. Um, You know, we, we just roll with it. We just grow and push ourselves and, um, you know, also honor, honor what's going on behind the scenes too. Is it just me? Like when I hear like people like who I speak to, when they just admit their uh, vulnerability, their weakness, it just makes me feel like I'm not alone. And like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> people have achieved so much 
still has that feeling kind of makes me you know heartwarming I guess yeah I don't know yeah, it kind of yeah. sounds mm-hmm. weird and it kind of also goes back to the whole idea of um self-reflective like seeing someone so it goes back to like if someone shows you the vul- their vulnerability sorry mm-hmm. um it's kind of like okay we're the same you yeah, know yeah. like you might be like when um assemblyman Lorena Gonzalez said that I was like okay you know so mm-hmm. I can relate to that you know if she has it then if I have it you know it just makes yeah. us human like um Christina had said so mm-hmm. it kind of gives us a sense of ease and I think that's very helpful a hundred percent and in you know the work of decolonizing kind of like how we present ourselves and pro- professional roles professional is like as it's practiced today Eurocentric construct um you know I think that that vulnerability and realness is so important in our communities traditionally like we didn't hide from each other like it wasn't like let me pretend to be this or that um and so you know it really is about like sharing knowledge with one another supporting one another um you know reciprocal exchange and like livelihood and so I 100% agree with that and my mentor when my mentors have shared things like that um and even when they share like resumes or things for me to look at, even from like, I had one mentor um, share like some early on resumes for their job or applications. And I was like, oh my gosh, I could see them over the years. And like, they were willing to share when they were first starting out. Right. And that was like, oh, it's okay for me to like, not totally get this. And like, you know, people make mistakes who are in like baller positions right now. And like, it's for me, you know, I try and do my best to, to offer that to folks who I work with too. Yeah. I think um, changing the system to be more inclusive and have uh, more diversity, um, it's very important because it just helps us all see that we're not different, that just because you're in a higher position doesn't mean that you didn't go through like the same um, things and fears, um, doubts. So I think that that mm-hmm. should be spoken and, you yeah. know, like said, because you know, you might not know if um, something you say might actually help someone and it makes you more approachable too, in a sense. Yeah, maybe going off on that. So I think we're hyped about, you know, meeting people like you. I'm pretty sure um, this kind of helped me ease my, you know, um, mental barrier of, you know, finding these counselor services like CAPS. So how can we reach you? Like, how should we contact you? And then who should be contacting the counselors? Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, in terms of reaching out to CAPS, um, one thing I usually recommend to folks, especially as we've talked about, you know, communities where there might be skepticism about mental health care. Um, if you go on our webpage, there is a list where you can look at our staff and read bios for each provider. So there's photos of providers, there's bios, talks about treatment approaches um, and philosophies. For me personally, like if I were looking for a provider, that's something that's really important for me. Um, And I think it can increase a sense of safety and um, yeah, just like motivation and connectedness to the process. Um, After that, you know, for scheduling with CAPS, you just call the front desk. Um, I'm like, I I can share the number. I mean, I can share the number, but I'm like, I don't know if people remember, I guess they can just rewind the podcast. Um, Like description for everybody to click on it or call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it'll be shared in the description. Um, All you do is call the front desk and say you want to schedule um, a brief telephone assessment. And that's kind of like where you start the process. Then you will get scheduled for a 20 minute phone assessment to see, you know, is CAPS going to be a good fit to meet your needs? 
um, to learn about other resources available through CAPS and on campus. Um, and if you might benefit more from like a referral off campus for more frequent therapy or a specialized kind of therapy that wouldn't be offered at CAPS, um, then they would provide that support in the brief telephone assessment. Um, and sometimes that happens down the line too, where you might start and be like, yeah, you know, maybe this is a good fit. Maybe I need different support. Um, and what I let folks know too, I let all my clients know this, is if you do end up working with a provider at CAPS, um, you know, one, you can request um, providers with certain identities or certain um, specialty areas. Um, so I do get a lot of students who request like um, bilingual, like English Spanish providers or like Latina providers or women of color. Um, and so like I get a lot of referrals for that. Um, you can make those requests. And if you do for some reason get matched with someone who doesn't feel like a good fit, you can always call the front desk and just ask to transfer. You don't have to give reasons. Um, so I like to let folks know, you know, don't let that be a barrier. Just like we talked about the importance of feeling connected to your provider and feeling like your values are heard and shared. Um, you know, you, you have those rights and opportunities as well. Oh, wow, I just didn't know that it takes 20 minutes for the initial assessment. I was thinking, you know, five minutes and then, you know, it's gonna be done, but it's like a more intensive 20 minutes to assess what's the best for you well yeah i'll say you know if you're scheduling to schedule the phone assessment that'll take like five minutes or less um but the phone assessment itself it is important to get an idea um because then you can get resources that are you know a good fit for you sooner than later if you do end up getting scheduled for like the next step at caps which is the initial evaluation then that will be probably a couple weeks down the line and that's a longer like approximately one hour assessment to get like a really comprehensive understanding of what's going on. Um, and so, you know, it, there's there's different steps to the process depending on what student needs are. Um, and it could involve, um, you know, being scheduled further at camps. It could involve off campus. We've also got um, therapy groups, which a lot of research shows is like just as effective as one-on-one. -on -one. And I always tell folks like historically, humans have healed in community. So, you know, groups make a lot of sense to increase that. Um, and then we also have drop-in spaces like workshops and community forums. Um, I lead one that's called uh, Latinx Chicanx Cafecito Hour. There's other ones for different, you know, specific identities. Um, and then, you know, workshops that are drop-in that you don't have to kind of like even go through the brief telephone assessment for. Wow. So quick question. So I know that um, you talked about the telephone. Um, so does that mean that there's no campus walk-ins? <laughs> um, well, right now we aren't doing walk-ins for those brief telephone assessment. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll have walk-in options, you know, coming up soon. Um, for the assessment though, uh, we do have, you know, a lot of students who are seeking services. So that helps us make sure that, you know, if a student's reaching out that, you know, they're gonna be scheduled for the, the next one available. Um, so yeah, for walk-in services, you know, I think everything's in transition with like back to in-person. So I think that, you know, you'll have to stay tuned for that. I know that we're working on stuff and as soon as we have information, we'll share it with the campus community for sure. Um, but I don't have an answer for, for that right now. <laughs> yeah, I was just asking just um, in case there's someone listening that wants to walk up and like um, ask information, but, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, hopefully things um, now start to be a little bit 
better and mm -hmm. um, in person sometimes is a little bit easier as well so yeah um, well what I'll say is that you know as things do open up um we do have providers at like the different colleges and I know that we're going to have a provider at, like you know, we also have providers at some of the different like multicultural centers and different places on campus. So um, if you go to our website too, there's a list of like places we're connected to. So in terms of walk-ins, like when we are back to in-person, um, and again, I don't have the exact answer, but you know, stay tuned um, <laughs> under construction. Um, as soon as, you know, that happens, and if someone's door is open and you're like in like, a, you know, the cross-cultural center or something like that, of course, you can drop by and say hi. Like those things are totally appropriate. That's why we're like in the community so that we feel approachable and accessible to students. We can't necessarily like guarantee like a walk-in appointment, but if you just, you know, want to see a friendly face um, and if you are near, you know, CAP Central Office when we are back in person, like I don't see any reason you couldn't walk in and ask questions and there's always you know flyers and stuff there um so you know in that sense I just don't know when that will be when you know all the on-campus in-person stuff <laughs> COVID yeah I know <laughs> so like um maybe like to bring up my vulnerability like recently with all the API Asian Asian American Pacific Islander hate um going on in the country uh, I sometimes feel kind of uh, very vulnerable in the mm -hmm. in living in the U.S. I guess as a like as an Asian, not even Asian American, like, as an Asian. Um, are there any like resources that you would recommend for those who feel the same as I am? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, um, most definitely. So we do have on our web page. Oh, I have to pull that up. I know we have like a help center that includes resources for like ethnic and race-based stressors going on. Um, and, um, you know, CAPS providers in general, we can offer students like a whole list of different resources, especially for folks experiencing, you know, Asian hate and those feelings of, you know, stress and potentially trauma that are coming up in response very naturally and understandably. Um, so, you know, I would say that um, going to our website, there's like, um, help center web link that includes those resources for ethnic and race-based stress um, and you can always also like reach out to CAPS and say that you know you want like a more like personal list of resources and we can send send stuff your way too um, it would be I can definitely you know share share stuff for y'all to share if you'd like I have some resources that one of our CAPS psychologists put together um, just like it'd be too much to like I can't comprehensively list everything like verbally, but I'll like I'll I'll give it to y'all so you can share it. Um, but we have a great list of of resources specifically for for folks experiencing anti-Asian hate right now. I guess just when in doubt, just call the number, get assessed. We'll <laughs> direct you to the nice resources. Yeah, and the website has a lot of really great resources too. We also have a great self-help page um, with like access to the Headspace app and even some like um, self-guided apps where you can do like therapy kind of like um, workshop or worksheet kind of things on like an app and you can do like self-guided practices. So, um, you know, I'd say scope around on the website if you know you're interested in the resources and folks at the front desk 100% can always help too. I know that just, you know, calling for a lot of folks, especially these days, calling is not like such a, you know, normal kind of thing. So the website's totally okay too. The front desk does get emails and stuff, um, you know, for anything urgent, we do have urgent care. So you can always call the front desk and after hours, you just press two. There's always someone available, but for non-urgent stuff, you can also, you know, email or reach out to whatever contacts are on our webpage. 
got it, got it. Um, so the reason why like we wanted to have a wanted to have you also because we were reading your bio as you suggested. We were looking <laughs> at the photo, and then um, we had a nice conversation with uh, Dr. Anita Raj, who's a director of Center of Gender Equity and Health. Mm-hmm. She just told us that it's really like heartbreaking to see all these first gen, second gen uh, college students getting um, sometimes sexually assaulted, sexually harassed. Mm -hmm. And then it just takes a huge toll on them just because they cannot really disclose it to their parents Mm -hmm, just because mm -hmm. they have a huge expectation for them to succeed. And then just the cultural thing, not able to, you know, as we discussed, um, to get help from these organizations. So you were just wondering um, if somebody discloses those things to you, um, what would be the great resources or like your um, therapy recommend? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think that it can depend, you know, so much on each, um, you know, survivor's experience and, you know, what they're wanting. So from the trauma-informed perspective, um, you know, I always see, you know, what it is that my students are, are looking for in terms of support and what feels comfortable to them in terms of like discussing certain things. It's usually not a first step of like processing things all the way through of what occurs. Usually with trauma-informed care, you know, we're wanting to assess resources, build up resources and social supports and connections um, and increase, you know, each person's sense that they can sue themselves and ground themselves and, you know, feel um, like they've got tools to to work with. So that's usually kind of where it starts. Um, definitely, I know that y'all had even talked about before, um, you know, in our previous discussions, Carrot Sark. So I think that that's a, a great resource on campus. The more folks that you can have on your team, the more a sense of community. Um, you know, a lot of uh, evidence-based treatment for trauma survivors is around like interpersonal supports. And we know that from, you know, age old traditions, like ancient traditions. It's like when folks experience trauma, the community comes in to help and support. And so same, same, you wanna be engaged with those resources. Um, And so I oftentimes send um, students resources that I get from Carrot Sark's page. They have a great um, list of like grounding skills. Um, I know they offer some like support spaces too. And then on my end, you know, it's really seeing like where the student wants to go with the work and it might not be directly related to the trauma it may you know have to do with that um but just empowering um that each person has a choice in what they want for their healing the reason that it was um brought up and it was important for me and um the reason why i contacted you it was because i um in my experience um when it happened to me, uh, I was in Santa Cruz, East Santa Cruz, and um, I actually went in um, and seeking help. And the person who um, was helping me, uh, which was their caps as well, um, said to me, why did you put yourself in that position? So afterwards for years, I always felt like it was my fault that I basically had caused that upon myself that it was it was my fault and it wasn't until later that I was like no it was unacceptable that that shouldn't have happened it's not okay so it just was very heartbreaking that someone could say that even though it took like a huge step especially in my culture where you know Latinos were like oh you know if you go you're crazy 
So I was like, okay, I took that step. And I just felt like instead of taking a step forward, I just took like a million back. Mm, but mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but it did. Um, so that's why I wanted to put out this resource for anyone um, that they could be able to um, hear a voice. Um, and mm-hmm. um, especially coming from someone from CAPS. And then that is also a part of the community and an advocate um, to know that it, it is a safe space. And um, that there's no judgment and um and it's not okay and it's okay to talk about it mm-hmm. yes a hundred percent and it breaks my heart to hear that that was a response especially when you know you're reaching out for support from someone and so yeah uh, you know I say to anyone who's ever had that, you know, experience, like you deserve to feel supported, you deserve to be heard, you deserve to be validated, and 100% you deserve to be believed and not questioned. Um, And so, you know, if anyone out there is like experiencing that, just like I said, with any provider, you can always transfer providers, like you do not need to stay in, you know, a therapeutic relationship either that doesn't feel like it's supportive, and it can even feel harmful. So I 100% support that. And a lot of my work with trauma survivors is, you know, supporting their trust and their intuition, um, because so many times with trauma that can be left invalidated and questioned, um, and especially in a society that it, um, I guess puts out so much shame towards trauma survivors, right? The victim blaming and shaming, um, and even saying victim, like I, I use the word survivor because you know everyone has so many strengths and. Um, so much resilience to be, you know, going forward in any way that they're able to. Um, And so, yeah, 100%, I, I support listening to your intuition. If something feels wrong, like, yeah, like, screw that, like, you deserve to feel like you're being empowered and uplifted. Um, Now, it always, it's, it's always a big question among every single person. Um, if they do come, is it confidential? Is it going to be shared? Because um, mm-hmm. sometimes that person is not ready to actually talk about it, let alone have like family members know. I know I was terrified to tell my mom because I, again, I thought I was my fault and that I caused this. So I was like, oh, mm-hmm. no, I'm like shamed of this, you know? Is yeah. it confidential? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to say like, yeah. I'm going to address that in one second and just wrap up the last part that, you know, you mentioned the shame and like, I'm just still wrapped up from that provider's response, but um, looking for trauma-informed providers will help give you that information also that they have training or expertise in trauma-informed care, which is hopefully never going to bring about those experiences and also feminist multicultural providers. Those are, you know, great things to keep in mind, but especially trauma-informed and related to confidentiality, um, you know, as mental health providers for, you know, disclosures of um, sexual assault, sexual trauma, um, that's not something that we're mandated to um, report or anything like that. Um, The only times that we break confidentiality is if folks disclose immediate risk of harm to themselves or others or um, abuse of children, elders, or adults who depend on others um, or um, situations where there's like some serious legal proceedings. Those are situations where, you know, we may have to disclose information um, for reports of sexual trauma. The exception would be, you know, if they were a minor or if there was a minor who might be um, being abused, um, then, you know, we would have to make reports to make sure that that doesn't happen because a lot of times those can be like repeat offenses and we wanna make sure that we're keeping people safe. 
Um, so, you know, it's not the same as if you're on campus where there's Title IX in other places, like outside of the therapy setting, um, because in some cases, if you do share with, um, you know, different folks on campus, they are required to make a report. But as um, therapists, we're a, we have a different level of confidentiality um, that's bound by like HIPAA, which protects, um, you know, client personal health information. That's really reassuring to hear that. Like confidentiality is such a huge thing like that's what we do when we talk about different things like is this gonna spread is this gonna mm -hmm. spread me? but like hearing that therapy and as you said trauma trained um, counselor is the person who's going to be able to you know communicate and believe you and also have the confidentiality that's really gives you a sense of assurance that that's in place a hundred percent. And I think that, you know, all that information is so important, especially for trauma survivors to have transparency because that helps to increase the sense of safety and, and trust. Yeah. Do you have any words to add, Scarlett? No, just that. Thank you so, so much for taking your time and um, for helping um, us give out um, some resources and um, support everyone who's probably um, feeling um, in a certain place or a certain way um, and giving them a little bit of um, information, resources, like I said. Um, I feel like I'm rambling right here, but <laughs> <laughs> all right. And I will, I'll send even more stuff. I'm, you know, even thinking like I'm someone who like over time, more and more things come up. There's some great like trauma informed, like yoga resources. I've been reading a book on restorative yoga for ethnic and race-based stress. That's amazing. And so, you know, I'll send some stuff your way that you can post that you probably don't even know about yet. Cause I haven't emailed them to you. So there'll be great resources. <laughs> yes, for them all to us. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Christina, for being here with us. And then Jinhao as well for being here Thanks with me. me. <laughs> yes. Thank you for all that y'all do for, for the community and for inviting me. It's been an absolute honor. I'm just, I'm so glad that there are these resources for students to feel empowered and to hear voices and to hear her voice. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's a huge service what, what y'all are doing and I'm, I'm excited for your futures as activists and advocates and, and everything that you do as well. So thank you for inspiring me too. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a lot of nuance happening that I feel like, you know, we should all just embrace it and just um, give it a go. And, you know, as you said, have everyone hear her voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Um, and then uh, we'll be sending you this um, recording once it's edited. Mm -hmm. um, but um, other than that, um, do you have anything to add on? Um, no. I think that's about it. Yeah. yeah. Anything you like to add on, Christina? <laughs> Any comments yeah. to the listeners or? Oh my, that that's a lot all at once. <laughs> <laughs> um, trust yourselves. Remember your ancestors, and you know, connect to the earth. There's a lot of healing there. Will do. Will do. <laughs> Thank you so much, and um, we'll stay in contact. Most definitely. Don't hesitate to reach out. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Hearing Her Voice is brought to you by Women's March San Diego at UCSD. The podcast is written and produced by Scarlett Lopez and Jin Ho Jung. 
Our design director is Melissa Wang. Our creative director is Surin Sunsa. And our technical director is Catherine Cordova. To learn more about Women's March San Diego at UCSD, please visit our website on Linktree. Subscribe to Hearing Her Voice on Anchor app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.